Good morning, folks, and thank you for tuning in to The Global Current, the Seton Hall School of Diplomacy and International Relations podcast. Each week, we break down a new topic in global affairs and have a conversation with students to analyze different perspectives on the issue. This is your host, Joaquin Matamis. Today, we're talking about the Saudi Crown Prince and the killing of Jamal Khashoggi. But before we get into that, let's check in with this week's news briefer, Annie Hebel, who'll be updating us on news headlines from around the globe. Annie? Thanks, Joaquin. At least 98 people are dead and more than 600 wounded following a series of explosions at a military barracks in Equatorial Guinea, reports the Associated Press. In a statement following the blasts, President Teodoro Obiang Nugema said that the explosions occurred due to the, quote, negligent handling of dynamite, end quote, at the base, which is located in Bata, the country's largest city. The U.S. and South Korea reached a new agreement regarding how to share the cost of American troops in the Korean Peninsula, reports the Wall Street Journal. The agreement resolves a years-long dispute over the issue. The plan, which will increase the monetary contributions of South Korea, is said to be part of a broader plan by the Biden administration to solidify relations with important international allies. Pope Francis ended his historic visit to Iraq by visiting the Kurdistan region, becoming the first pontiff to ever visit the area. The region is home to thousands of Christians and became a safe haven for many during the reign of ISIS. CBS News spoke to Bayan Sami Abdul Rahman, the Kurdistan regional government representative to the U.S., about what the Pope's visit meant to the region. I think the visit of Pope Francis may have given them some hope that they are not forgotten, that Iraq is not always seen as the country of devastation and bloodshed, that with his visit, he has raised some hope. He has spoken about coexistence, brotherhood, brotherly love, and peace. And we hope that this will empower the Christians, Yazidis, and others in Iraq to stay, and certainly they can stay in Kurdistan region where they are safe. A fire at a Yemeni migrant detention center killed at least eight people and wounded more than 170, reports the Associated Press. At least 90 migrants are in critical condition. The detention center, located in Yemen's capital, is run by Houthi rebels who have controlled the city for more than six years. The cause of the fire is not immediately clear and investigations are underway. Voters in Switzerland narrowly approved a controversial new law banning full facial coverings in public, which many have dubbed a burqa ban. According to Al Jazeera, 51.2% of voters supported the proposal which critics are calling Islamophobic and sexist. The ban follows in the footsteps of several other European countries, which have enacted similar policies, and several Muslim groups plan to challenge the proposal. All right, thank you, Annie. On October 2nd, 2018, Jamal Khashoggi, uh, a Saudi dissident and columnist for the Washington Post, visited a Saudi consulate in Istanbul, uh, where he went missing for several days. The earliest reports ruled his disappearance as a murder. Later, evidence was found that Prince Mohammed bin Salman, uh, or as they colloquially call him, MBS, on, of, of Saudi Arabia, gave the order with the help of a 15-man hit squad. MBS denied these accusations. Recently, on February 11, 2021, uh, the U.S. began an intelligence assessment on MBS's involvement in Khashoggi's death, death. When the report was declassified on February 25th, U.S. officials confirmed MBS's involvement. Today, the story of Khashoggi's murder has resurfaced, as state actors and people alike call for justice. This week, we're keeping it current with two of our own Seton Hall students. Our domestic analyst for today is Drew Starbuck. Welcome to the show, Drew. Thank you, Joaquin. Happy to be here. 
And today's international analyst is Daniela Macera. Welcome, Danny. Hello, Joaquin. I'm very excited to be here today. Of course. All right. Well, I guess to start off the show, um, why don't one of you tell me a little bit about uh, Jamal Khashoggi? Why are we talking about him today? Well, I guess I can start off, Joaquin, by most of all pointing out Jamal Khashoggi was a respected journalist for the Washington Post who attracted a lot of international attention because he spoke out against the many injustices going on in Saudi Arabia as well. He was especially critical of ruling Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman uh, for his NEOM project, a futuristic city which he criticized was going to bankrupt the country, Saudi Vision 2030, and his restrictive policies towards women's rights. And unfortunately, a lot of his views, which garnered a lot of international support and support from fellow journalists, ended up getting him in a situation which he could not get out of. So I think it's important to start there, establishing the personal animosity between Jamal Khashoggi and the ruling prince of Saudi Arabia. Just to add on that, uh, before Khashoggi had uh, exiled himself from or gone into voluntary exile to the United States, he had served as an advisor to senior officials in the Saudi government. He was seen as a close uh, member to the ruling elite, so close that even uh, in the 1980s and 90s, he got to interview Osama bin Laden through contacts with the Saudi royalty. Um, so it was he definitely played a big role for the government before he had his um, contradictions and issues with the prince. Oh, he definitely seems like an important figure, at least in the area. But I guess why why specifically was he so important uh, to MBS? You know, and I guess I want I'm curious to see um, how Saudis viewed uh, Khashoggi and his work. Well, I think I can give a better perspective on this, and I think a lot of this dates back to MBS himself and a lot of his current policies that he's undertaken since becoming the ruling crown prince of Saudi Arabia in 2015. He's consolidated power. The recent release of the intelligence report by the United States government confirms that he has subordinated the intelligence services and security service basically to as well. And he is the chairman of the Council of Political and Security Affairs and Minister of Defense, the world's youngest at the time of his appointment, because he is still only 35 years old. And he is the power behind the official figurehead of the Saudi government, his father, King Salman. And with that power that he has grasped, uh, he is wary of any that could potentially undermine his rule. And he saw Khashoggi as a threat to that. And exactly. So what was his role in, in all this? I mean, we've learned that uh, Khashoggi was just visiting a consulate. Uh, why do you think, like, at this point, what were the motivations for, uh, for MBS, if any, uh, to, you know, to kill Khashoggi at this moment? Through his role as a journalist for the Washington Post, and even before he, again, had gone into exile, Khashoggi had been using his own social media to criticize uh, MBS's own tactics to consolidate his power. And he had further used his Twitter account to criticize other governments like the U.S. government and more specifically President Trump. He had opposed the Saudi-led intervention in Yemen. And it was... Uh, MBS, who had barred Khashoggi from, from using his social media um, to make such claims and 
and and so he he in a way symbolized this dissident journalist for other governments who also try to control the press and try to suppress those kind of opinions that seem to be critical. So for the rest of the world, he he represented this threat that more journalists were facing in in the idea in the fight for a free press. Definitely. Um, and I guess back to uh, back to MBS because um, although he does seem very critical of uh, of Khashoggi, he does seem to have all these projects in Saudi Arabia. How how are these projects taking form? You know, um, what do uh, do Saudis view uh, MBS as? So I feel like I can give a better perspective on that, Joaquin. And I'm going to refer back to this one. Pr- overall reform project that MBS has embarked upon ever since 2016 called Saudi Vision 2030, which their website officially designates is a strategic framework to reduce Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil, diversify its economy, and develop public service sectors such as health, education, infrastructure, recreation, and tourism. And besides the points already stated below, Saudi Arabia this Saudi Vision 2030 is MBS's reinvention of Saudi Arabia as a whole, its economy, its military, its industrial sector, trying to firmly bring it into the 21st century and diversify it beyond just being an oil monarchy. And to do this, he has centralized his power as stated, subordinated intelligence services and the security services, uh, eliminated threats to the royal family and eliminated dissident journalists that we just covered. And by doing so, he is seen as a reformer, but also a reformer that has so centralized his power, he's not letting anyone else use it in a way. So he's embarking upon many vast reforms that are costing trillions of dollars. Uh, Khashoggi, as I said before, was critical of the NEOM project, that is called, which is MBS's dream to build a futuristic city in the Tajik province of Saudi Arabia that would cost over half a trillion dollars. So by this, the MBS is embarking on a period of reform, but it's an authoritarian period of reform. So MBS seems like a very divisive figure. So at the same time, a reformer, but also kind of this, um, you know, this, this figure who's also trying to gain a lot of power in Saudi Arabia, this very central figure. Definitely, definitely interesting. If Danny or Drew, if you wanted to elaborate more on, on the, the critiques on these projects, you know, um, you, you touched a little bit about the bankruptcy, but are there any other, you know, uh, negative effects that, that this might have on Saudi Arabia or, or I guess the world economy in, as a whole? I don't think that the Saudi Vision 2030 is threatening to the world at all. And many, as many in Saudi Arabia would agree, it's a much needed reform, especially when it comes to Saudi Arabia's dependence on oil and OPEC in particular, of which it is a member. However, the criticisms of the project often come with how to attract investors because Saudi Vision 2030 is dependent on a lot of investment from nations, on a massive inflow of foreign capital and investors. I think the motto of it states they want to be the hub between three continents, Asia, Europe, Africa, in between it. And so being dependent on foreign investors, there's some requirements that they have to meet. And uh, this is where MBS has kind of shot himself in the foot a little bit is because of his uh, policy, domestic policies, his restrictions towards women's rights. Recently, he installed, but later uninstalled, a guardianship app on social media that allowed Saudi Arabian men to track the females that they were family members to or that they 
they were related to through blood. So the, and of course his actions, the murder of Khashoggi, the, he kidnapped the foreign minister of Lebanon uh, and his feud with Qatar. All of this has driven down foreign investment and of course the COVID-19 pandemic. It seems that he is embarking on a period of reform, but is unwilling to do the things necessary to attract more capital investment and forward investment because he's unwilling to democratize his country. Thank you for that. And I bring all of this up because, you know, now the story is all about this, this U.S. report, um, this this intelligence assessment that, if I'm if I'm not wrong, um, does confirm MBS as the, you know, as kind of like the shock caller in the situation. So I'm curious now about um, the international response to this, I guess, specifically the U.S. So far, uh, what has the U.S. done in response to this after this intelligence assessment has been released? Yeah, so I can I can address that question, but who can let me first go to to when the news came out of these of this murder with the previous Trump administration and the initial reaction that it had, which was definitely different to to what we're seeing now with the Biden administration. So um, Trump, he his response was reluctant in the sense that he didn't want to denounce the murder when it had not been confirmed yet. Um, and, and didn't want to associate it with the crown, with the prince. However, um, when Khashoggi's um, murder ha- was still unconfirmed, um, but there were more signs coming from the Turkish, um, um, from Turkey that there had been, that he had not left the, emb- the consulate, uh, that's when former President Trump started showing his first signs of concern of a possible death. Then the CIA released a report that incriminated some Saudi officials for, for planning to abduct Khashoggi. But even then, President, uh, former President Trump refrained from accusing such official actors and, and attributed the crime to rogue killers. So never again trying to make this direct linkage with the government, the Saudi government itself. It was later around mid-November, considering that um, Khashoggi disappeared early October. So around mid-November, both the Washington Post and the Associated Press reported that the U.S. intelligence, uh, that some U.S. intelligence officials had concluded that MBS had ordered the killings of Khashoggi. These sources only cited unnamed officials familiar with the CIA conclusion, but neither the CIA nor the State Department responded to the post confirming that that had been the case. Later, when when the tapes and the recordings of the murder came out, um, because Turkey released them, Trump uh, declared that they had access to them, but they still wouldn't listen. So it appeared that it was then when the U.S. and Saudi Arabia were very high in tension in December 17, 2019, when Turkey finally released the transcript of audios, the prince denied uh, knowing about the killing, but he claimed responsibility because it was had been his officials or officials of the government who had been involved. So this is when the U.S. Congress tried to pass the defense bill to ask the director of national intelligence to share this unclassified report with evidence on an advanced knowledge or the role of any current Saudi officials, which could have involved MBS. But this is when Trump declined the report and, and banned, banned it. So it, it, it didn't allow for any other investigations to go even further or for any 
reports to be declassified until, like you said, Joaquin, recently that these reports came out in February that U.S. intelligence declassified an assessment on the murder and and it indeed linked MBS to 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 the murder, referring to him as a person who, who knew about it and, and the planning that was behind it. Um, as a response, the Biden administration imposed a visa restriction on 76 Saudis involved in the murder and in, t- in the intimidation of Saudi critics in the U.S. And this is what they're calling the Khashoggi ban. However, this was not well received by human rights groups and some senior Democrats because the Biden administration decided not to directly sanction the prince, MBS himself. Um, the the administration only made allegations about, or rather declarations about um, making the people responsible accountable for, for such violations. It definitely seems there are there are different priorities here that you spoke about. You know, the Trump administration uh, didn't seem to, to put uh, Khashoggi very high on the list for this. Um, but it seems like the Biden administration is really biting back. If you could, could you like elaborate a little bit more on, on why that might be? Yeah, so I, I believe during the Trump administration, security officials prioritize the national security of the U.S., its interests in the Middle East, um, and supported more an, an aggressive side on um, on their relationship and didn't really try to address human rights violations. And it was also a time when, if we recall, the U.S. was trying to not necessarily isolate, but didn't take that role of a global power, global leader, a promoter of human rights and these democratic values as much as, for example, was the case during the Obama administration. Inviting again is taking that um, that kind of mentality, that kind of mission for the U.S. in, in, in his inauguration speech. He said he wanted to, again, uh, turn the U.S. into this global leader, uh, re-engaging multiple um, international agreements. So this is why they have committed against, again to a fight for human rights. And this is not to say that they are going all out and calling on MBS for the violations. They are still prioritizing their economic ties, their, their national security uh, priorities, but they are still bringing up these uh, ideas of human rights and, and democracy uh, in a way so they can still remain as promoters of such values. If it's all right, if I go and add on Danny's points, I think she spoke about a lot of, made a lot of good points, but when really looking back at the U.S.-Saudi relationship, it's important to note that this relationship was very much transactional. Uh, the U.S. has imported Saudi oil, and it's only recently that the United States actually became energy independent. But we also rely on the kingdom to help stabilize the world oil output as our kind of ally within OPEC. And Saudi Arabia, in turn, buys many of our weapon systems and we view them as our they view us as our main protector and also we see them as a key ally in isolating Iran within the Middle East and especially under the Trump administration with a more antagonistic approach towards Iran Saudi Arabia was a main ally and of course I think part of the reason the Trump administration's reaction was very different to the Biden's reaction is that the Trump administration was much more concerned about who was really buying American weapon systems. And 
I do remember seeing headlines that Saudi Arabia even offered to pay the United States to have American troops stationed within the kingdom. And so it was much more transactional relationship, whereas the Biden administration is more concerned about the actions of the domestic leaders within Saudi Arabia. However, like Danny said, Biden didn't go all the way. He didn't sanction MBS directly. He could have imposed asset freezes and travel bans on MBS, but he didn't do that because he may be afraid of poisoning his relationship with Saudi Arabia, who still remains an important partner. But one thing to watch is that not doing this still allows MBS to influence power. And despite Biden recalibrating the relationship with Saudi Arabia, someone saying he's going to go counterpart to counterpart and speak directly to King Salman, the United States will still interact with MBS in his official role as defense minister. He's still overseeing the weapon systems going into Saudi Arabia, uh, their trainings, their allies in the fight against Islamic terrorists within the Middle East. So there's, he still has a lot of power and influence despite this report just coming out. And it definitely seems tenuous, you know, this relationship that you bring up um, between the U.S. and Saudi Arabia. You, you know, Drew, you do say it's transactional, but there's also a political aspect to that. And it seems that uh, that they definitely have to balance, you know, this this idea of of maintaining a political relationship while also maintaining this transactional relationship. And it seems like there's a lot at stake. But as for the rest of the world, I'm curious what is the international response beyond, you know, besides these two, you know, these two basically allies um, in this in this kind of fight over Khashoggi? Um, so, yeah, what is the inter- what, is, what are other countries saying about this? The immediate reaction by of organizations like Amnesty International, Human Rights Watch, uh, was a call for an independent forensic investigation separate from the one that Saudi Arabia was already undergoing as well as Turkey as well as Turkey. Um, the Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, called for an immediate investigation, again, independent from, from any other country's association. In his declarations following the confirmation of Khashoggi's death, um, Mr. Guterres um, called for accountability for those involved in, in the crime. Um, for example, following the murder trial of 11 suspects, um, in the conviction of five, um, the Human Rights Office said that such trial was not enough. So they, they a UN team um, underwent or started an investigation led by Agnes Calamard. And it was around five months after in 2019, June 19, um, when the report came out. And he concluded that the killing was an extrajudicial killing and that the prince specifically should be investigated. Um, however, this time Saudi Arabia dismissed the report and claimed unfoundedness. No other country part of the Security Council tried to bring this up to the Security Council or make a reference to The Hague. Other Western countries like France, the UK, Spain, Denmark, the Netherlands, they all echo um, the UN call for a, a transparent investigation. German Chancellor Angela Merkel declared that she did not accept the explanation that Saudi Arabia had given on the death of Khashoggi. But there was a different reaction, of course, coming from the allies of Saudi Arabia in the Middle East, such as Egypt, the UAE, Yemen, and Bahrain. 
they they all really praised what what they call a decisive action when when King Salman Salman tried to restructure the kingdom's intelligence services to start investigating this death. So there was a mixture of response depending on um, what country uh, we're talking about, but it seemed compared to the U.S., these other Western powers were more um, direct when declaring or, or calling for a separate investigation when claiming that the prince indeed should be investigated, uh, unlike US, the U.S. president at the time uh, being more reluctant to point fingers at the crown directly. And it's actually great that you uh, that you bring up the the allies of of Saudi Arabia because I was just about to ask about um, I guess the uh, the local perception the you know the impact of this report what is that doing on the ground in Saudi Arabia you know Drew you mentioned all these these projects and you've kind of mentioned how um, how MBS is is considered this reformer but uh, with this you know verifiable report from the U S what is this um, how is this affecting things. That is an interesting question. I, just to build off of Daniela's point, yes, there is international say, calls for sanctions against MBS, but with the United States not willing to go all the way in sanctioning him, uh, he still has a grip on power, as stated earlier. But the situation in Saudi Arabia gets a little bit tricky now that we look at the impact the report could have, because many in Saudi Arabia believe it is the destiny of MBS to inherit the kingship later on when his father passes away. And thus his actions have been geared toward securing that, first of all, but also influencing that perception and making sure that is widespread. Uh, he has imprisoned other members of the royal family as well that have opposed his rule. And it's obviously the actions of a man who definitely wants to secure his power. And thus there's the belief by many that no matter what happens, he will inherit the kingship. However, looking at some remarks from some analysts uh, analyzing the domestic situation, uh, Sari Lee Whitson, who's the executive director for Democracy for the Arab World Now, King Salman and any independent advisors he may still have would have would be well advised to consider how unsustainable it will be for the king to, to retain MBS as crown prince because he has been proven a liability to the international community and has drawn sanctions against the kingdom itself. And it's important to note that despite being designated crown prince of Saudi Arabia, that does not mean automatically that MBS will inherit the kingship. Many crown princes have not, have either had that title taken away from them or they have not lived out their term. And Dr. Khalid Aljabri, who is currently in the United States, like former journalist Jamal Khashoggi, uh, who has close ties to senior Saudi royals, said, just apply the law, sanction MBS. If they sanction MBS, the whole country would come to a standstill, and King Salman would have no choice but to remove his son, even if he doesn't want to. And so there's other possible candidates within Saudi Arabia that could take over the crown prince and actually rule the kingdom. However, unless there is proper international pressure applied by the United States, most of all, it's going to be hard to unseat MBS himself. All right. Thank you, Drew. You make some very excellent points about that. Um, and that actually transitions quite well to the next part again, because I'm I'm curious now. Both the U.S. and Saudi Arabia seem to have a very difficult relationship right now. And to, to move past this, you know, um, what do you see, what do you guys foresee in the future? 
I think I can I can take that question from the U.S. perspective based on on recent declarations made by some um, U.S. government officials as a response to um, what the Biden administration has done so far. It seems that many specifically senior uh, Democrats are on board with denouncing human rights violations. And, and for example, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi made a statement that the U.S. government uh, should reevaluate, and this is another word that they are using a lot now, recalibrate their relationship with Saudi Arabia. They know that they highly depend on it. And like Drew said, they have a very transactional relationship um, in terms of oil, weapon, and in from an economic perspective. Since the U.S. Um, as an oil producer now can be affected by the change in prices if Saudi Arabia were to change its supply and adjust it, it could create an economic disaster. The same thing would could occur for for uh, the, the arms deal that the U.S. has with Saudi Arabia. They have a 110 billion arms deal. And this arms deal could even go up to $350 billion for 10 years. So we're thinking, we're really thinking in the long term. This is not a relationship that can be just broken up easily. We also have to think of the role that Russia or China might might play in the Middle East. If uh, the U.S. were to cut all relationships, then, for example, China would become the biggest uh, supplier of, of just goods the biggest supplier of, of goods for, for for Saudi Arabia. It also seems that for the production of weapons, they have a trade surplus with Saudi Arabia of $5 billion. And this appears to support 165,000 jobs in the U.S. So there's a lot um, at risk. The U.S. fears that Saudi Arabia might freeze its trade, which Saudi Arabia has already done with countries like Canada, which has... Um, call to release, for example, detain activists. And so so this is a big threat. And for a long time, the U.S. has put its uh, security interests first, although to try to balance its, its commitment to human rights and, and democratic values. Uh, I do agree with the idea of recalibrating the relationship because it's been pointed that uh, rulers such as um, Bashar al-Assad from Syria, Kim Jong-un, President Nicolas Maduro of Venezuela, and Robert Mugabe, they have all received, or, or, or the, the U.S. has appointed a, a trouble ban because of their actions. But none of these countries were major, quote-unquote, allies or partners for the U.S. So they are really... The U.S., I think, has to be very careful because it's hindering its commitment to human rights and setting a precedent for future administrations, allowing them, giving this space for them to commit this kind of violation and then not be held accountable in a big way. Um, I think in my last point, it's like Drew said, um, the prince will probably inherit the, the, the position of king, and he's still 35 years old. So this, the decisions that his administration uh, take now um, might not go or, or, or remain if another president were to come in the future, while for MBS, he will remain as the main leader, key actor for Saudi Arabia. So it is very important for them to maintain 
um, good relationships with them. And if I could just build off Daniela's points, like like she said, and the Biden administration has stated to to the world that there's going to be a recalibration of the relationship, but it's not a disabandonment. It's a realization that yes, uh, the relationship is needed somewhat and it's suitable for both parties. However, the coziness that existed between the Trump administration and NBS is is gone. And I think it's important to note how MBS himself will react to this because I expect him to take a step back somewhat because uh, he has taken many risky foreign policy decisions. His decision to, of course, as the report says, murder a respected Washington Post journalist, kidnapped Lebanon's prime minister, oversaw a feud with Qatar. And one thing we haven't touched on today, which would be a mistake not to, is uh, the war in Yemen against the Houthi rebels, which the UN has designated as the worst humanitarian catastrophe in the world today. That's in, mostly in part because Saudi Arabia's air air raids against the country itself, imprisoning women's rights activists. So his actions have caused him international condemnation, and his reforms as a result of it and the pandemic have halted. So I expect him to try and take a much more careful approach uh, internationally and domestically somewhat to attract more investment, but also continue to secure his power and recognizing that he is in for the long game, that he has plenty of time, he's still young, and also there is no real threats to his power right now within Saudi Arabia. So I do think there will be a recalibration. Do I think things will change meaningfully in the long run? No, I do not. And I wish it was different, but I do not think so at the moment. So Danny, Drew, thank you so much for joining us. But sadly, that is all the time that we have for today. Please be sure to follow The Global Current on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for updates on upcoming shows. And the show couldn't be made possible without our excellent crew. Our executive producer, Jared Dang. Our associate producer, uh, Jasmine DeLeon. Our technical producers, Joel Moran and Brittany Segura. And assistant technical producer, Jason Marieski. I'm once again your host, Joaquin Matamas, filling in for Eric Bunce this week. The Global Current is brought to you by the School of Diplomacy and International Relations at Seton Hall University. As always, keep it current with us and catch us on the waves every Sunday at 8.30 a.m. on 89.5 FM WSOU.